turn in our Bibles, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 16. To kind of bring us up to from where we've been the last couple of three weeks. You know, we talked last week about Jesus having conversations with demons that were inside of people. I don't, I can't remember exactly how I might have explained it, but demons that possess people use those people's voices to communicate with the outside world. Now I know angels, when they take on other shapes and forms or forms of human, they can speak themselves with their own voice. But apparently demons cannot. And so they use their host voice. And we saw last week where Jesus was talking with two demon-possessed people and carrying on a conversation with the demons that were within the host. And one author, Matthew, disregarded completely the host, but, but Mark and Luke both acknowledged the fact that the host was getting a lot of problems from the demon that was in him. Now, it's my prayer that we, like the people during Jesus' day, that we could understand something of our enemy's world. It's like some of the guys from Vietnam said it was the hardest war or battle they ever fought because they didn't know who to shoot at. There would be children. With, with bombs tied to them under their clothes. It was coming around to blow up our, our, our soldiers. And they never knew who to shoot at. Well, you know, it's almost impossible for us to know how to deal with our enemy if we don't know who they are. And the fact is, I've learned that they're around us every day. We saw last week to where we had those three encounters of the same encounter, really, but they were from three different witnesses and they were all uh, uh, worded differently. And today we're going to look at another situation with a demon. And to understand something else about the scope of what they do. Now demons have the same orders that Satan does. They work for him. And he gives them general orders to come and try to undermine everything we're doing for God. And we'll see today how some of that goes on. But we'll see another way it happens also. when the host is fully conscious and still his voice is conveying something that a demon told him to say 
And I don't think Peter, who we're talking about, even realized he was saying. But I want, as much as we can, to some kind of way detach these stories from the Bible about being something that maybe is out there somewhere and it's like a, a fairy tale or a, or a story told about something that may or may not have happened. This was everyday, folks, for these people. I mean, you knew about demon-possessed people when you couldn't even go through town by the cemetery because there was one or two guys out there that would run and chase you down and catch you and beat you up almost till you died. They knew about the demon world. And if I understand correctly, 70% by research of the people in the United States don't even believe in a devil. So he's doing a tremendous job right there. But in the 16th chapter of Matthew, by the way, the title of this is Who's Talking? It asks the question, who's talking? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. It says... Jesus is going through and creating miracles. And verse 21 says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Please understand something. Jesus was the Messiah. But one thing we got to understand, to understand why it was so hard for some of these people to believe that he was the guy, even with all he did, that during the time, the few years around when Jesus came in and claimed to be the Messiah, there were over 200 men who came in and claimed to be the Messiah who claimed to be Jesus. And every one of them had died one by one. When I see when Jesus died, they thought, the populace was thinking, this is the same way everybody else that claimed to be the Messiah died, just like Jesus did. But there's a hitch in this story. Jesus was resurrected in three days. That's the difference. That's the difference. And that's the thing we have to understand and believe in order to be a Christian is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected and walked among men here on this earth for 40 days. And there's a lot of witnesses to that effect. But Jesus has started telling his disciples what's going to have to happen to him. And quite frankly, they're not handling it very well. But understand now, the idea they had of Jesus was that he would come, when he came as the Messiah, he would be the new king of the Jews. He would rule the Jewish kingdom and run all the Romans out, and they would be under their own king again. That's the kind of king that the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be. 
So that way, there's no way a person who was so humble that he rode on a donkey's colt coming into Jerusalem, he couldn't be a Messiah because he didn't fit their picture of the glorious king that was coming to take over for them. Verse 22. Well, let me make another comment or two. This, Peter and Jesus were standing there talking. And Peter was a brash man, we know that. He was way brasher than most. And we'll see him probably put on, now you know, he pulled the sword and cut the guy's ear off. That was one of the most brashest moves I've ever heard of any common sense grown man doing when he's looking at 500 people come there to get Jesus. And here's what he says here. When Jesus tells him this, of what is coming in the future for Jesus, he says in verse 22, Then Peter took him aside. It, that's, that's kind of figured in. It's not with the language. But Peter took him a, a, away from the rest of the disciples to rebuke him. And that word rebuke is really to condemn him. I mean, Peter was eating him out. And he said, Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto you. It's, gonna, it's not going to happen. What you're telling us is not going to happen. It can't happen. Because it went so far against what they expected that Jesus was going to be for them. And the terminology according to the wording here that they used during that time, he really condemned Jesus when he just told him, Jesus, that's just a flat lie. That's not going to happen. Why would you tell us something like that? Verse 23, but Jesus turned and he said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou art, for thou savorest or like the taste, not the things that be of God. He's responding to what Peter just said. And he's not talking with Peter. Peter's the one that's standing in front of him. But he's talking to Satan, the one that gave Peter the idea to say what he did. Jesus knows these things. And quite frankly, folks, we don't see it that easy. And it seems like the further we go, and I've been around long enough to see it happen so many times, we're not getting any better. We give the credit for folks speaking out for Satan to all kind of things except for Satan himself. Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He said, Peter, you're talking just like Satan does. 
So I'm going to talk to Satan who gave you the idea to say what you just said. Now this is different than what we had last week. Peter is not a converted man at this point. Jesus the night of the Last Supper told Peter, when thou art converted, so and so and so and so. So Peter wasn't converted the night they had the Last Supper. And he's not converted here. You can remember he and John ran to the tomb. And John believed at that point he looked in the tomb. But you know Peter didn't then. He saw the, the clothes that he was wrapped in and still didn't believe. I personally feel like probably Peter was saved when Jesus looked across the fire at him in Pilate's hall. When Peter had just denied Jesus three times. And it said Peter went away sorrowful. I think he realized at that point just how big a fool he'd been making of himself. But at this point, Jesus is talking right around Peter and talking to Satan, the one that is influencing Peter to say these things that he said. Please understand me, folks. We are subject to being under the influence of Satan. Always before we're born again, they've got total access to us and control over us, the demons have. But once we're saved, we can be influenced and oppressed if we're willing to fall for the temptation. Because in this case, right, Peter, to respond this way, and Peter had bit. He took the bait and fell right in doing just exactly what Satan wanted him to do and responding to Jesus just like Satan wanted him to, trying to destroy the work of Christ. Jesus couldn't let it go. Now you know Jesus constantly heard every day somebody in the crowd saying something that he knew was influenced by Satan and he didn't respond to them. But this one right here was Peter. Peter was the man that was going to preach and form the church about 50 or 60 days later. He couldn't let him go this far. He had to stop him and try to make some sense out of what he was saying and scolding him for it. He sent, I mean, I don't know how much Peter understood of this conversation, but what he was telling, say, uh, telling Peter, Peter, you're listening to Satan and going right along with him. He told Satan, you're an offense to me. To me, it's a really interesting thing, that word offense. That word to offend, to, to, to trip somebody on their way to Jesus. That's what it is. It has to, it's, it's not like we use the word today that somebody have their feelings hurt and they're a little indignant because of something we said. That's not what the word means, not in that day. In that day, that word offense was when a person was on his way to Jesus, the Holy Spirit spoken to him, 
And God is going through the process with the Holy Spirit of bringing that person to Christ. And then somebody comes in and trips the guy on his way to Christ and it puts off him being saved. Maybe days or weeks or months or years. And the word that they used was a trigger for a trap. It's a trap stick. The word they used for a trap stick back in those days was the word that Jesus used to explain what Peter was doing here. That little, I mean, simply put, you know, you've seen it all along, the, the little box propped up, the wooden box with the sticks under it, with a string on it. And a, and a carrot up under there. When the rabbit goes up under the box, somebody snatches the string and the box falls and traps, the, traps the, the rabbit in the box. That's the kind of, of message that Jesus was using to talk to Peter. And that little stick that holds the box up, that when it's jerked out, the box falls and traps the rabbit. That little is called the trigger stick or the trap stick. And that is the word that Jesus used in talking to him. He said, what you don't know, Peter, you're the trap stick. What's coming out of your mouth is going to offend and hold back a lot of people from going on to Jesus Christ. And Peter didn't even realize that that's what he was saying. Now let me ask you this. How many times does somebody start talking about something that you don't would rather not talk about and you say, oh, don't talk about that right now. Let's not talk about that right now. And that's what we're doing. God made so vividly in my mind a conversation that happened to me in 1975 my dad in 1969 had gotten lung cancer and they had taken out his right lobe. He had to live with just his left lobe. They said he would be dead in six months. They gave him an open prescription for painkillers and told us to let him have anything he wants because he's not going to be here long and he might as well be without pain while he's here. Dad lived for six years instead of six months. And he had to put up with all he had to put up with as his heart got weaker and weaker and weaker and he took on uh, congestive heart failure and so many of the things he couldn't get out in real hot weather because he couldn't breathe, couldn't get out in cold weather because he couldn't breathe. It was just to just sit in the house and look out the window. That, that, that house up on 25... It's got that picture window in front. It's still got the elbow prints of my daddy in the seal of it. He spent so much time propped up in that window looking out the window. Two and a half weeks before he died, we were all there at the house that day. Susan remembers it. And daddy came in and said, uh, uh, let's get all around. says, I want to talk to you about when I go. And I said, do what? He said, I won't explain to y'all how I want it to be when I'm dead. 
And I said, oh, Dad, 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 we, we don't want to talk about that right now. I didn't want to bring up a subject like that because everything was, was, was in a good mood and everybody was having a good time. And he turned to me and he said, hush, boy, I don't want a mess after I'm gone. I've heard other people talk like that. They, they, they grabbed grab the moment and what they wanted told to the rest of their family. They, they wanted it, them to hear it right then. This was what Jesus was doing, folks. He was telling his disciples, I don't want a mess after I'm gone because it was a mess. And it turned out to be a mess even after he told them. Peter was like me. Peter didn't respect the man nor the moment. I didn't respect the man, my father, and I didn't respect the moment. And you've got to respect one of the two. If you can't respect the man, you've got to respect the moment they're in at that time. And they deserve to be heard. And you don't say to them out of disrespect, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that right now. You don't do that. You let them say what they're going to say. Because a man on his way to dying and knows about it, and my dad knew after six years of being an invalid that he was soon to go. And he did. How he knew that, I don't know. But he lined out for my mom every single thing he wanted to happen after he died. We see here that Jesus in other places told the disciples, y'all will scatter when I'm dead. You'll scatter and go every which way. And they did. Peter denied it. John ran. The other disciples scattered and hid. And of course, Judas killed himself. It was a mess. The disciples didn't stay together. They came back as the, the, the news of the crucifixion began to die out a little bit because a few days later they were back in that upper room. I've never gotten that, forgotten that moment about my dad. I know what he must have thought about me when I was saying that. This young and don't even have enough maturity to, to let me in this important time in my life say what I need to say. I had to call him down to get permission to say it. That kind of stuff is all around us, y'all. Peter's responding to Satan here just like I responded to Satan in that day. And I said something that shouldn't have been said. If Dad had been a weak man, he wouldn't have finished his conversation. He would have taken the, 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 the exception and not said anything. But I'm glad he did.
we find ourselves in a place like that. And I think if you, this is brought to your mind, that if you will pray in your prayers and ask God to show you when this is happening in front of you, you will be like Jesus and recognize this statement coming out of a person's mouth is really under the influence of Satan and not what he should have said at all. And we see that happening in business, in social circles, in our families and everything else. It's all around us. And it is the work of the demons that Satan has got out there in little bitty ways to destroy God's work with us. If you will, please turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Now we've laid out a situation here that, that Jesus in other places in the scriptures the writers have said that Jesus put this stuff in our scripture so that it would be an example to us not to do the things or to do the things that they did then. It was to keep us from making mistakes under the influence of demon spirits. Probably not the devil himself because the devil is a person. He can only be at one place at one time. The, the Satan is not like God. He can't be everywhere at one time. He can only be one place. He has the characteristics of an angel. And the angels are not like God. They can't be everywhere. Probably because this being is so important and he's got so much to do, probably he's probably personally never dealt with me. Maybe. One or two times, I think, maybe because it was absolutely so horrible. I couldn't imagine that a demon could have been doing to me what, whatever was, was coming out of the evil world was being done to me. But at any rate, they do stuff like this to you. They can cause you to have pain. And they can cause you to be sick. And they can cause your head to be all scrambled up. And I've been through all of those things. But they have that power. They can put you in the hospital in ICU. I've been there. And I know where it came from. So what do we do? Here we are, just ordinary, born-again folks, trying to learn what God wants us to learn and trying to cope with the, the, the enemy the evil spirit and the evil world out there around us that is bombarding us in the face every day. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says here, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. You know what you're supposed to do when Satan comes in your proximity? When one of his demons comes in your proximity and starts lowering the boom on you, you're supposed to stand. Now that's where we get it back, backwards. Think for a moment. 
and this has been my experience in any way, we tend to run from temptation. Oh, that would be a temptation. I'd never want to go into a bar like that or whatever you name the place. It would be too tempting for me. I'll, I'll stay away from that. We're supposed to run from temptation. But we're supposed to stand at the devil. And we tend to do the opposite. If we think that Satan is in, the, in our proximity, we light out from that. But we'll stand around all kind of temptation that's around us every day and think we're not going to be hurt from it. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You're supposed to, like Jesus did in the wilderness, you're supposed to stay right there in Satan's presence and turn him around everything he says with the scriptures of the book. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is not each other, folks, we're fighting. But against principalities, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Folks, this is the second. Your friend used to say it from Vietnam. At one time, Satan was the second most powerful man in the whole world. Before he got kicked out of heaven, he was God's right hand. And he had more power than anybody except for the Lord. Now we're excluding the other parts of God, which are Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But other than that, you've got to realize that Satan was the most powerful being in the world except for God. And this is what, this, this system that he has put together is what we're fighting against. Wherefore, he says in verse 13, take unto to you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, here it is again, to stand. Now Satan's going to scare you like a German shepherd dog. You know how they'll run at you. And when they get right at you, they'll stop and make a circle around you or something. Unless a dog is trained to attack you, they won't come straight at you and hit you while they're coming. They will run right up to you and start bouncing on their feet and maybe make a circle around you. Well, when... Satan forces run at you like that. God says to stand. Don't turn around and run. You stand. And having done all you can do, just stand there and take it because he can't touch you. He can't do anything to you but make you do something to yourself. Stand therefore, verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. He's treating the armor of a Roman soldier using the attributes of a Christian as they stand to defend themselves against the evil world. 
and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, things which are coming at you from the wicked world. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me show you something that's built into this that you may not realize. Have you ever seen a picture of a Roman soldier in some of these kids' books or something like that? Or maybe a Bible dictionary or something? Have you seen one of them with the, with the Greek or Roman armor on? There's an interesting thing about it. You always see them from the front because that's where all the armor is. Everything about the Roman soldier protects his front. Once he turns and starts running, none of the armor goes around for to behind. His whole backside is exposed to whoever's there to try to do him some harm. And once he turns his back to the enemy, there's no problem. You can stick him with a knife, you can cut an arm off with a sword because all the armor's on the front. The only way we have any protection. That's what reason God is saying this and using this example. The only way we have any protection is to stand. You turn and run, you've got no protection. That to me is one of the most accurate analogies of what's being trying to be said. Of course, they're all throughout this book because Jesus has got the power to be able to build stories that are unlike anybody else you've ever seen. All the weapons that God has given us, and he's listed them out right here, every single weapon that we have, are for defense. They're to protect us against the attack of the enemy. There's only one weapon we've got that is an offensive weapon. There's only one weapon we've got that we can go after them with. And it's right up here in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is the only fighting weapon God has given us is the Bible. Everything else he has equipped us with is a defensive weapon, something that keeps us from being hurt by somebody coming at us. That's the reason we can't run. That's the reason we can't even turn around. When you sense that Satan or his, his crew are after you, you've got to face them. Whatever situation they have created to try to undo you, you've got to face it. You can't turn around and run from it. You can't turn your back on it and hope it'll go away. You've just exposed yourself to the evil world. You've got to face it. 
that's where all of God's armor is on the front. And that's the reason he's saying here, you got to stand. You got to stand. You can't turn and run. You can't even turn around. You got to stand. When you're facing your enemy, all his blows are going to hit you on the armor that God has given you. You've got to be in a place where Satan can tempt you and he can divert your attention away from the issues that you're trying to deal with, but he can't occupy that place. You can't let Satan stay. There's one neat thing about this whole thing. We're talking about evil working against you every day, and it is. We might think we've got slack, but we don't. It's coincidental happening to us every day coming from the demon world. But we can't turn around and run. We can't act like the problem is not there. We can't say, I'll come back and deal with you tomorrow because as soon as we turn to walk off, they've got us. We've already lost. As soon as you turn around from a problem, you've already lost it by that time. But we can't let Satan stay where, he's, where he is in front of us. We can't let his demons stay. We can't let his system or his people stay right in front of us. But the neat thing about it, they're all cowards. God plainly says that. They're all cowards. All you've got to do is just stay there and stand there and take what's coming from him until you can take the word of God and hand it back to him and immediately he'll leave. Have you ever gone back and, and, and reread that story about Satan tempting Jesus right after he got his ministry, right after he was baptized? Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. That didn't take any time at all. Two of the greatest beings that have ever been on the face of the earth were having it out in a conversation trying to see who could get the better of the two. And it didn't last any time. It was a simple answer, and it was over. So you don't have to stand long, because Satan's not going to stand there and keep fighting at you. He's going to make his play, and then, like that bad dog, he's going to turn around and run back to the house. So all you got to do is just stand there for that, that rush, and then it's over. James says, stand, resist him, and he will flee. The world is Satan's weapon against us. He's constantly using the world to try to undo us in our relationship with God. And, and, and it's the simplest thing in the world, folks. We got to see things for what they are. It's a new car that you can't afford to make the payments on. That will put you in a place where you can't stand with any credibility or any bravery and deal with anything because you can't pay. It's eating up every single thing you can make and you find yourself with no credibility, with no, no confidence, with no anything. And he's using those things with us 
to try to keep us back on our heels to where we never walk down the street like Paul prayed for. God, give me boldness that I may stand for you. We can't stand for Jesus because we're in too big a mess. And we put ourselves in the mess, but it's Satan's temptation that makes us choose to do it. So how do we do it? Matthew 17, 21. You remember when the, 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 seven, the, 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 the 70 came back and a guy came back with them when Jesus had sent out the 70 with all kind of power to do things and he came, they came back and a guy came back with them and he said, I'm looking for Jesus. And they said, well, he's right over there. So he went over there and found Jesus. And Jesus said, can I help you? And he said, yes, my son is possessed with a demon. And your guys did everything they could do, and they couldn't get it out of him. Now I'm asking you, what's going on? And they carried on a conversation. And I've got written in my Bible, why did Jesus stand and talk to this guy? What's going on? But then it became obvious. They were carrying on this conversation back and forth, and finally the guy looks at Jesus, probably with tears in his eyes, and says, look, I've been through all of this with my son and his demon possession, and all of your guys can't do anything. Would you please do something to help my son with this demon? And at that point, Jesus healed him. Why did he wait? Why did he let the disciples go through all of this? And he says, when they asked him, why couldn't we do this? He said, this is so strong that the only way it can be done is with prayer and fasting. You know what prayer is? You know what fasting is? It's going without eating. That's the reason. The writer says here that the only way we can do that tough stuff is by prayer and by controlling our body. Telling our body, oh no, you're not going to eat that. We're going to have to do without eating. So it's body control to keep yourself away from Satan. You don't buy that. You don't eat that. You don't do this. You don't do that. All the things that come under the do's and the don't, you don't do it because it puts you in a place where Satan can get at your backside. You don't want Satan on your backside. If you have to face him, you want to stand and face him and have him where the armor that Jesus has given you will be working. To me, this is an analogy that we can think of as Christians. And when we deal with an issue and all of a sudden it hits you, you've been dealing with this, and it just seems like it's impossible to have to get a solution to it, and then all of a sudden it hits you. You know, I think Satan's in on this. This has got to be something so bad that Satan must be behind. And then, well, if I'm going to deal with it, I've got to stand. I can't run. I can't put it off. I can't act like it's not there. I've got to face it. 
And when we do that, we'll have all the protection that God has for us. Offense and defense. Everything God's given us has been defense except for the sword of the word. And we can hand back Satan and his world scriptures if we know them. Because that's an encouragement to learn more scriptures. Trouble from Satan is out there, folks. It's out there every day. And it's everywhere. I'm seeing it more now, and I think it's because I'm getting a better eye. I don't think it's because there's more of it out there. Maybe it is. Maybe in these last days I hear people say that Satan's making a little bit of a hard thrust here at the last. I don't know that. I know we're in the latter days because it says so. I mean, he describes it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. But please understand, you've got to stand and you've got to face the problem. And you've got to call on God for help. And he, it says he will give you the scripture you need to deal with the problem. So you look for a scripture that can be your offensive weapon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, number one, teaching us how bad the situation is, and for number two, telling us what we can do to have the most power against this system of Satan and his demons. Lord, teach us. Don't let us turn away and walk off not knowing that we're exposing ourselves. Lord, let us remember your little story here that we might be able to stand against Satan and everything he throws at us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.